Hi, we're in a series that we've entitled Backstory, and we're examining the, the parables of Jesus, but we're trying to look at them, what I hope is in a, a fresh way, to see a little bit of the story behind the story. And, and so today we're going to look at a parable that is commonly called the parable of the unrepentant servant, um, but I actually think it, there's a better title for it that we'll discover a little later on as we go into it. But the story ultimately is about forgiveness. C.S. Lewis put it so well. He said, forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have something to forgive. It's so great in concept until that arrow of hurt pierces your own heart. When you get to that point, it takes on a whole new dimension and meaning. I'm going to push that one. Forgiveness may be the most difficult thing God commands us to do. And so as we begin, I want you to think and allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your own heart and mind. Is there someone or an event in your life that you're really having a difficult time forgiving, letting go of? My premise to you today is that God wants to set you free because the fact that you're struggling with it means that it has a hold on your life that God wants to break. And here in this parable, we're going to see what God has done for us and then how we can respond to what he has done and find freedom, the freedom of forgiving others. Forgiveness is difficult, and it is because this desire for Wanting to strike out against those who hurt us is so strong that the Lord Jesus deals with the need to forgive on numerous occasions in the Gospels. He considered it to be one of the crucial life issues. And his entire life was both a lesson about forgiveness and a provision for it. It is incredibly, incredibly important. Now, Before we get into this, I need to put a little bit of a disclaimer. Forgiving someone does not mean that what they did was okay. It is not saying that what happened to you was something small that should be minimalized. It may be very, very significant. It also does not mean that there aren't consequences for a person's actions. We can forgive someone, and if something has been done against us criminally, there there will still be consequences that impact their life because they not only sinned against us, they sinned against a law, and therefore they are subject to the consequences of that law. However, God is very clear that he calls us to forgive. And so when we come to this passage... Peter asks a great question. How many times must I forgive my brother? It's a question that when someone has offended you more than once, seemingly they have a lifestyle of offending you, all of us are going to ask, how many times do I need to forgive this person? And Peter, his answer that he gives is actually what he would think a pretty generous answer. Because in that day, the wisdom of the day by the religious leaders was that you should th- forgive someone three times. It's kind of, if, if you were 
an American, it would be three strikes, then you're out. Okay, after that, there's no more grace. That's all you get. Now, now where did they come up with that? The rabbis would teach that, and they would basically tell you, okay, three times, and then after that, payback. Well, it comes from the book of Amos. It's a, it's a small little book, uh, a prophecy. And in that book, seven different times, the Lord, in, in a kind of poet, uh, poetic form, says something along these lines. He says, thus says the Lord, this is Amos 1.3, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke punishment. And then he goes on and says the exact same thing about Gaza, about Tyre, about Edom, Moab, Judah, and Israel. He's basically saying that there comes a point when a nation, when their sin and rebellion against God gets, gets so full that consequences are going to come. And that's a truth. We all are accountable for our sins. But that passage has nothing to do with how often we should forgive someone else who has sinned against us. But Peter, he doubles what the conventional wisdom of the day is, thinking Jesus is going to agree with me on this because I've more than doubled what everybody else expects. But Jesus says, no, not seven times. Seven times maybe is a, a good start, but 77 times, he says. Now, now, where does that come from? Well, let me show you a little bit of the background because what Jesus is doing is he's showing the exact opposite of human nature. If you turn back into the book of Genesis, there's a story in Genesis chapter 4 um, about the first conflict in human history. It is a conflict between Cain and Abel, two brothers, two sons of Adam and Eve. And they have a conflict, and their conflict revolves around Cain's jealousy because Abel offers a sacrifice to God that is accepted, but Cain, wanting to look good in his own eyes, brings something that is outside of what God has told them to do, and his offering is rejected. And out of envy and jealousy, Cain kills his brother Abel, the first murder. Didn't take very long for violence to fill the earth once sin had settled in. And so there's this conflict, and God comes to Cain, and he's speaking to him, and Cain is not repentant so much for the death of Abel, but he is fearful. He is fearful because he recognizes that because of what he has done, People are going to look at him as a murderer for the rest of his life, and eventually someone is going to want to kill him. They're going to want to take out vengeance on him because of what he did to Abel. And so God, wanting to put an end to a cycle of violence and vengeance, he gives this instruction in Genesis chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear, because he had been sent out. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. He's fearful. The consequences of what he has done are very real. He's been sent out from God's presence and from, and from um, God's people, and he's a wanderer on the face of the earth. Verse 15, then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. 
So here, Jesus is picking up on the seven that Peter mentions, and he's going back to that cycle of revenge that was in the very beginning of humanity. But if we turn over just a few verses, we find out by the time we get down to Cain's great-great-grandson, Lamech, things had gotten worse. Lamech was far worse than Cain. He didn't just respond out of envy and the heat of the moment and do something that was wicked and sinful and killing. Look what he says in verses 23 through 24. He brags about this. Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. I probably would get in trouble if I referred to my wife like that, wouldn't I? So is that why you're sitting over there today? Yeah. My bride. All right. Sorry about that. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And then he boldly makes his own proclamation. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. You see, left to human nature, there's a cycle of revenge that gets worse and worse and worse. And what Jesus is doing is he's picking up on that same theme and he's saying forgiveness needs to be exactly the opposite. Human thought seeks revenge, but the kingdom of heaven seeks forgiveness. And really what he means by saying 77 times is there is no limit. He's not saying that you count and when you get to number 78, it's okay to take vengeance. When I was a young boy, um, I had a slightly twisted sense of theology. I probably still do in some cases, but the Lord is working on me. And I had this rule in, in my understanding when it came to conflict with other boys. And it was simply this. God in, the, in his word says to turn the other cheek. I have two cheeks, therefore they can smack me twice. And then I can beat on them. That was how the rule was working in my heart and life. Okay, if they hit me here and they hit me here, I had to take it and then I could fight back. Now, that's not at all what the scripture says, but that's how I twisted and interpreted it. Fortunately, I didn't have very many fights when I was, when I was a boy, but I will confess I did practice that rule and on the third one, things got pretty ugly. And fortunately, the Lord has, has forgiven me and I've learned that I was wrong in my thinking but that's how we are as humans. We look for a way to justify ourselves. Well, Jesus then takes a story and says, this is what you really are to live. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. What Jesus is doing is he's, he's drawing a contrast here between the ways of natural men, which is is bound towards vengeance and a contrast to the kingdom of heaven, what it's to look like. Verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, let me just tell you, that is an unimaginable amount. The, first, the servant's debt of 10,000 talents basically means this. A talent was the highest unit of currency in the land. You couldn't get any bigger bills or coins in this case than a talent. And 10,000 was the highest number in the Greek system of that day. 
So he's saying the highest currency of the highest number is how much this guy owed. What he's saying is it is absolutely, there's no way he could ever pay it back. He had gotten himself so in debt that there was no way to pay the price. Now, to to give you a comparison, to kind of get a feel, rather than than financial, because this really has nothing to do with finances. This is about our sin debt. All right? Here, I'll let you do a little calculation. If you could sin only one time a day, think about how many days you have lived, how many sins would that be? In the case of a 56-year-old like me, that's over 22,000 if I only sinned once a day. But you know what? I haven't sinned just once a day. In fact, I'd probably be a lot closer if I calculated it at once an hour. When I think about my thoughts, how they, they stray and wander, deeds that I have done. And in that case, if I did it once an hour, which probably still is short, it's over 490,000 sins that I've committed. That's my debt to God. In fact, it's, it's more than that because it's not just the ones I've committed. It's my heart's rebellion against God and my pride. It's an insurmountable debt. But then look at the grace of the king because this is ultimately what this story is all about. Verse 27. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Well, let me back up. I I jumped too far ahead. Let me read verses 25 and 26. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold uh, with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant falls on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now, in essence, what happens here is this servant prays what we would sometimes call in the church a sinner's prayer to a point. He recognizes he's in trouble. He he needs help. He needs to be forgiven or at least receive patience. And so he humbles himself before the king. And the king represents God in this case. And he says, you know, I recognize my debt is real and it is huge. But if you'll just give me time, I'll pay it back. But God, knowing he can't pay it back, there's no way he can pay it back, goes even further and gives grace and says, I will forgive the debt. Now, here's something incredibly important that often gets missed in this passage. When the king forgives the debt, it means He pays it. Debts don't just go away. The debt was still real. It was there. And it had to be paid. In this case, the only one who could pay it, the king, is the one who pays it himself. Forgiveness always costs the one who forgives. This is a principle we need to understand. Because we have to recognize that there's a cost to forgiveness. It goes on in the passage in verse 28. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, 100 days wages. Okay? 
a far smaller amount, still a significant sum, but very small compared to the original debt of the first servant. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you the same thing he did before the king. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Ultimately, this parable is about our hearts. It's not about sins done against us. It's not about debts that we owe. It is about the condition of our heart. And it is in that that we discover that forgiveness has a source. Through this parable, we discover that the forgiveness comes from the king. The source of all forgiveness is God. Because forgiveness is not natural. That's why it is so hard. Forgiveness is divine in its nature. It is absolutely against our nature to forgive. So the backstory of this parable is that God pays our debt of sin. Jesus Christ chose to pay what you and I could never in a billion years pay. Like this servant, we are in the deepest possible debt to God because of our sin. We need to be forgiven. And if we lose sight of how much God has forgiven us, we will never truly be able to forgive others. So forgiveness comes from a source which is God. And when we forgive, we are simply reflecting what he has done for us. But thirdly, forgiveness is costly. The forgiver pays what the forgiven owes. Only the king can pay the debt. You see, ultimately, this parable is about the gospel. God paid our debt for us. Jesus suffered the price of debtor's prison. He was separated from the Father. He paid the full debt because we could not. Upon the cross, Jesus Christ took upon himself all of the weight of our sin, all of the debt, the full value, and paid for it. Forgiveness is costly. And Jesus had to be treated the way that he was. He had to be beaten and scourged and mocked and ridiculed because that's what your sin and my sin deserved. And he willingly took on that price himself. So you see, one of the reasons why our forgiveness is so hard is because when we forgive, we bear the cost instead instead of insisting on repayment. It is substitution. It is allowing ourselves to suffer for the sin of another person. It is ultimately atonement 
because that is what Jesus Christ did for us. But this, because of what it truly is, that's why it's so important to God. When we recognize that forgiveness is a picture of what God has done for us, then when we refuse to forgive, we are saying, in essence, that God's forgiveness of us really is not that important to me. It's sobering, isn't it? When we think about it. Now understand, forgiveness is not excusing other people when, they, when you come to an understanding of their actions. Forgiveness deals with sin. And if the behavior can be excused, then it needs to be accepted, not forgiven. Nor is forgiveness forgetting, allowing something to, to slip out of our minds. When God forgets our sins, which he, he says he does in the scripture, they do not slip out of his omniscience, his all-knowing. To say that he does not remember them against us is not quite the same as saying he does not remember them. He chooses to not hold them against us anymore. He chooses to place them on Jesus Christ and sees them as paid in full. Often we are overwhelmed by the cost of forgiveness. At times, even now, some of you are thinking, if you only knew what this person did to me, I have no desire to minimalize what has happened or the extent of evil that you have endured. Nor am I suggesting that reconciliation is always possible, especially when that person refuses to accept or acknowledge responsibility for what was done. But we do need to look at this in light of what God has done for us. Furthermore, it's important for us to recognize that forgiveness is given and never, ever earned. If someone could earn forgiveness then they paid the debt. But because it's a reflection of what God has done for us, we recognize that the forgiver is the one who has to pay the debt. That's what God has done for us. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. Forgiveness means pardoning the unpardonable or it is not forgiveness at all. This parable is often called the parable of the unforgiven servant, but I think perhaps what it really is is the parable of the new covenant. Every time when we gather together for communion, we have the bread and the cup. The bread represents Christ's body, which was given for us, and the cup represents his blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of sins of many. It is a picture of, what, of the price that Jesus Christ paid to forgive us. He poured out all of himself in order to cover over our debt. In, in that, he said, this cup is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many, and it is the new covenant. So you see, in order for us to truly celebrate what Christ has done for us, we need to share the same cup with others and forgive them. We need to represent the new covenant in our lives. And that's what he's calling us to do. Forgiveness means erasing the act, letting go of the wrong, 
In fact, that's precisely what the word means in Matthew 18, 21. I choose to forgive. I'm not to wait until I'm no longer hurt by what was done. Forgiveness is a servant of our will. It is not the prisoner of emotions. It is not easy. In fact, it may be the hardest thing we ever do. But also, it will be the thing that we do that is most like Jesus Christ. Keep that in mind. Forgiveness, ultimately, when we choose to do it, not because the other person deserves it, but because God deserves it, is an act and expression of worship. That's why you do it. Say, Lord, because you have been so gracious to me, I want, as an expression of my love for you, to forgive those who have wronged me. That's why Jesus taught, it, taught us that in the prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It is a reflection of how our heart has received his forgiveness. Forgiveness is costly. But the refusal to forgive is even more costly. It is impossible to receive forgiveness gratefully from one and refuse it vengefully to another. When I choose to receive forgiveness, in essence, I obligate myself to practice forgiveness. And what I believe Jesus is saying here in this passage is that if we cannot forgive, we need to check our heart to see if we really have trusted Jesus' work on the cross for our salvation or if we are in some way trusting in our own ability to pay it back. You see, ultimately, the first servant, that's still what was going through his mind. Even though he was forgiven this huge debt, somehow in his mind, it got twisted around to thinking, I've earned it. Therefore, I can demand the full debt from others. He had never truly received the grace that the king was offering. Let's look at it again, verses 32 and 35. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt, all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Unforgiveness reveals a heart that has not been transformed and changed by the presence of God. And it is incredibly, in fact, eternally dangerous. Unforgiveness is more costly because it can cost us a relationship with God. Forgiveness protects our heart also from the deadly disease of bitterness. S.I. McMillan says this way, The moment I start hating a man, I become his slave. He even controls my thoughts. I can't escape his tyrannical grasp upon my mind. That's what happens. When we refuse to forgive, we become imprisoned. And the person that we refuse to forgive actually has control over our life. 
But when we give that to the Lord, when we plead to a higher court and say, Lord, I'm trusting you with this circumstance. I'm placing it all in your hands and I choose to represent and reflect you and forgive them as you have forgiven me, we're set free. Now, one of the reasons why Jesus commands us to forgive is simply because if we do not forgive, what has been done to us, our hurt will become our identity. Do you really want that to define your life? That event, those words, that action, you are more than that. In fact, if you've trusted Christ, you are now a child of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That is your identity. And because of who he is and what he has done, you have his ability to forgive others. Don't let your hurt define you. In the same way God does not define us by our pasts, he gives us a way to be free from our sins. Confession sets you free from the guilt of sin and forgiveness sets you free from the bitterness of sin. We need to remember that the enemy is an accuser and we're not to listen to his lies. You are not your sin if you were in Christ Jesus and you are not what has been done to you no matter how bad it is. Because when sin becomes your identity, it will keep you in prison every time. So what do we do with it? First off, we recognize that the only reason we can forgive is because we've been forgiven. And so I've put in your, your sermon notes some steps to help, help us walk through forgiveness and get to the point where we can begin to allow God to do a work in us and then through us. It is not easy. But here are the steps. I put a short version in your sermon notes and there's a, a longer version that's on the website in the media section if it's something that you want to spend some time going through, especially some of the scriptures. Step one is to call on God. Ask God to reveal unforgiveness in your heart. Confess it for what it is. And ask him to change you. I told you, it is not natural. It is supernatural. And therefore, we need God to work in us. Ask God to renew your heart and to give you a right spirit. Then thank God for his forgiveness of you. Ask God for the grace to forgive the one who has offended you. That's the first step. Call on God. We need him. Secondly, Choose to forgive. Forgiveness is a choice of the will. Choose to give the person and the circumstances over to God and allow him to handle the situation. There are oftentimes, depending on the type of hurt, maybe other consequences. And that's okay. That's not your responsibility. The responsibility is your own heart. Choose to forgive. And there's a blessing that comes with that. Jesus in Matthew 5 said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Here's why I say that when you forgive, when you choose to make peace with the person who has forgiven you, you are most like Jesus Christ because that's what he said. You look like his son, his daughter, 
when you choose to forgive. And isn't that ultimately what we want? Is to have others see Christ in us. If the person that you need to forgive is not alive or is for some reason unapproachable, the forgiveness needs to be a work in your heart and ask the Holy Spirit to do His healing. If they are approachable and are alive, then find a way to take action if you can. Address the situation. Acknowledge that there's something that's wrong and needs to be fixed. See if there can be some understanding in the relationship. The third step may be the most important, and that is to take every thought captive. Because the truth is, the enemy seeks to replay the hurt over and over and over again in our minds and stir up our thoughts and rob us of joy and of life. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Here's what I encourage you to do, whether it's about forgiveness or any other sin that, that begins in the focus of our thoughts. Ask God to take that thought captive, to pull it away and to transform you into obedience to Christ. This is something I've found that I have to do often in my life. When I'm having thoughts that are sinful, I need to ask the Lord, would you take that thought captive? I don't want to think this way. And if I'm left to my own, that I will just replay that over and over again and make it worse. So would you take that thought captive, Lord? And would you enable me to change my thinking and obey you, to obey the Spirit promptly? We take our thoughts captive by praying, by focusing on God's forgiveness, and by focusing on God's word. And there are passages of scripture, in particularly the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 45, the story we looked at last week and the prodigal dad um, in Luke 15, 11 through 32, and this passage here in Matthew 18 that helps us see God's heart. There are other passages like Ephesians 4.32, which tells us to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Be imitators of God. And then step four, not only do we need to have our thoughts taken captive, we need to continue to forgive. God forgives us perfectly and forever. He says in the Psalms, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. East and west never meet. God said, I've separated them from you. They can't come back. Ask him to enable you to forgive in the same way. I want to end with a little video clip that kind of summarizes it and probably says it better than I can. And then we're going to go into a time of worship. But let me pray for us and then let's watch, watch this clip and then go into a time of worship. Dear Heavenly Father, 
We are debtors to you. Every single one of us is in need of your forgiveness. And Lord, you graciously poured out Jesus' life. You gave your son to pay the ransom that our sin required. You paid a debt we could never, ever even begin to pay. Lord, help us to remember that and remember with awe what you have done for us. And then by the presence of your Holy Spirit, empower us, Lord, to forgive. Lord, I know that there are those here in this room and that the hurt is so deep. It went on perhaps for so many years that there's no way I could even begin to comprehend it. But you do. So Lord, would you speak to their heart? Would you wrap your arms around your sons and your daughters who are wrestling, who are struggling right now and remind them that you are with them right now and that you love them and you accept them and you've forgiven them and that you can give them the power to place that hurt in your hands, to place that person in your hands. Lord, I pray that today you will set hearts and lives free. Lord, those who have never trusted you, Lord, I pray that today they will recognize that that they can't pay their debt either. And they need you. They need to receive your grace. And Lord, I pray that you would rescue them, that they would call upon the name of Jesus Christ today and receive your salvation. Lord, prompt them after the service to, to go and speak to one of our intercessors to pray with them. Lord, there's others here that they just, there's things they need to forgive. Lord, would you do a work in their heart and set them free? Lord, let them know that they're not alone. You're with them. And Lord, others will stand and walk alongside of them. Father, we need one another as the body of Christ. Do a work in us, we pray. For your namesake, honor and glory, we ask. Thank you, Jesus for your forgiveness. In your name, amen.